0: Did you listen to the lyrics? I'm going to capture those lyrics at the end of this message. But I'm telling you what, I think some of those lyrics are better than a lot of the Christian songs that I'm listening to. They're right down the line. That's not a Christian band. And they are awesome. That's Rubicon Cross. And they've written some really interesting lyrics for their song, Bleed With Me. And I think that we need to see again what God declared in Genesis 2.18. Are you ready? It is not good for the man to be Alone. Can you resonate with that? I hope you can, because this entire sermon series is meant to pull that out and show how desperately we need each other. We need to be together in the church, but how do we do that? And I think the Bible has shown us how to do that, and it's shown us in 59 times that the phrase one another exists. That's just New Testament alone. Fifty-nine times the Bible tells us in the New Testament, here's how I want you to be together. This is the way that the church should be. And so we're pulling them out for a several week, actually a a few months sermon series on this. And we're going to look at our next one today. I'm going to tell you right now, it is painful to be a pastor. Now I know some of you all think that we work a half a day a week I understand. I've been hearing that joke for 28 years. That was old the first time I heard it. It's hard work, but it's a joyful work, but it's a grievous work. And I'm going to tell you why. It is hard to pour your life into people who claim to be Christians, who claim to know Christ, and then when difficulty, t- when difficulty comes, which it always does in everybody's life, all of a sudden they pull up stakes and they walk away from Jesus. They walk out of the church altogether. It's often seen in people experiencing loss or hardship or their own struggles with sin. And they seem to just lose their faith. I mean, do you know anybody like this? You probably do. It's hard for you as well. They just seem to lose their faith. They give up on God. They give up on the church. So is there a way to help those who are struggling to keep their faith alive? That's a question I'm going to give to you. And I really want you to think deeply because the Bible is going to answer it. Here it is again. Is there a way to help those whose faith is struggling and they're on the verge of giving up? The Bible calls it a flickering candle of faith or a bruised reed. Is there a way to come around people like this? And if so, how do you do it? And the answer to that is going to be in this message along with the motivation why we need to do it. You know, Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever really looked through it and studied it. Can I just throw that out there really quickly? Would you please Take some time in the next few weeks, read through the book of Hebrews, study it, slow down. You're going to see this thread that weaves its way through it. It is written to help people who are struggling with their faith, with their confidence in God. It's written to help them stay strong until the very end of their lives. In fact, let me give you a sampling. I'm going to give you five verses from Hebrews, none of which we're going to really look at tonight closely. But here's five. Here's just a little sampling of that thread that's woven through it. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There is this drift that is common to people. Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews three fourteen, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you see this end? It is vital to make it to the end of your life. How do you do that when you're going to go through trials? Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And finally, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, this is Jesus, against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, are you getting that? Let's just grab this right now, this thread. Let's hold on to it, because I'm going to unpack it deeply for the rest of this message in Hebrews chapter 10. But this thread is this. We are all prone to losing our faith. We all struggle to, to keep believing, to keep trusting. It's, in, it's part of the nature of all of us. And we cannot make it to the end alone. We cannot make it to the end with a robust faith. We cannot persevere in our faith if we live in a solitary life. We need to come together. And this one another is designed to do just that. Well, if you haven't yet, can you get your Bibles open to page uh, 1,000? In 7 in the Pew Bible, it's Hebrews chapter 10, if you have your own Bible with you. We're going to look at a few verses. And we're going to see that we need one another to endure, to continue to trust in our God. And we're going to see this in our passage today. Let's start in chapter 10, verse 23. Let me just read it, and then I'm going to give a few comments about it. We're really going to look at verses 24 24 and 25. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's just another way of saying hold fast to your faith. For he who promised is faithful. That would be Jesus. Now let's just give some comments on this. I want you to kind of think through this. By the way, it is so easy. And I I have sat under preaching ...for a lot of my life. I'm 52. I've been the lead pastor for 12 years. I sat under preaching for 40 years. So I know the tendency that your mind just drifts at the slightest little thing. So I'm going to hold your mind to this for just a second. Let's unpack it. Let's think about it for a moment. And I want you to think of the word hope. How do you define in your own theology the word hope? And have you discovered how important hope is for life? And have you discovered that if you begin to lose it, and I'm not, listen, it could be in your marriage. It could be with your children. It could be with your parents. It could be with your job. It could be with your coworkers. It could be with anything, your health. Listen, when you begin to lose your hope, you feel like you begin to drift. That drifting it's a crazy, terrifying feeling. I remember when my dad died a long time ago, back in 1997. When my dad died, it was like an anchor snapped in my life for about two weeks. For about two weeks, I felt like I was drifting. I couldn't find solid ground. I couldn't find anchorage for a little bit. Well, this is what it's like, and this is what Hebrews 6.19 kind of teases out. This hope is a strong and trustworthy, look what it says, anchor. For what? For our souls. So if you don't have hope, you've got a soul adrift without an anchor. Now, I'm just sort of going around it right now. Let's kind of get to it. I'm going to define, I think, a fairly good definition of hope. And here's what I would say it is. Hope is faith for your future because you're persuaded God has been faithful in your past. Now, if you don't know anything else about hope, let me just at least say this. Hope is always about your future. You might say, I hope it really snows tonight so that I don't have school tomorrow. Some of you are praying more than you've ever prayed this last week, all high school kids. Because you didn't want, you didn't want school, so you prayed for snow. Well, you're hoping that it snows so that something in the future won't happen, no school. So hope is always, listen, it's never not about your future. That's a double negative, meaning it's a positive. It's always about your future. But it's a persuasion that God's been faithful in your past. Listen, if you don't think God has been faithful to you, you're not going to be able to trust him for your future. You're not going to be able to hope for your future. You won't have faith for your future. Corey Ten Boom once said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. She knows what she's talking about. You see, life has a way, you know this, of smacking us around. And our hope and our faith, they have a tendency to suffer. You know, many years ago, we went with my sister's family to Knobles Park, and we had so much fun. But we were in the picnic area, and my children were really, really small. Andy was not even born. Our other three were born. And uh, Aaron, very, very young, he's up on the merry-go-round. You know, something you'd get in one of the playgrounds. And I'm up on it with him, while my brother-in-law, Ken, is just throwing us around faster and faster and faster. And all of a sudden, I'm standing right behind Aaron. I think he was maybe two years old. And he begins to cry out, and I can see his hands beginning to slip off of the bar. He's now holding on with the very final knuckles of his fingers. And so I take my hands, and I put them over his hands, and I anchored him to the railing. And he didn't cry out again. In fact, he began to laugh at that point. See, when life goes crazy, which it does, And your trust and your faith in God begins to slip. And listen, it probably will. How do you hold on? Certainly we have a God who rides the merry-go-round of life with us. He holds us fast to the bars. In fact, Hebrews says Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So he's going to help us hold fast. But in the modern church, and listen, I hope you hear this. In my opinion, a great many people in Cornerstone are neglecting how Jesus actually helps us hold fast. Do you know how Jesus helps you hold fast to your faith? Well, here we go, verse 24. Here's the answer. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm going to give you three. Super simple principles that are extracted straight from these two verses. How do you hold fast to the confession of your hope? Here's the first one. Stir up. Two words, stir up, right in the text. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Like most families, my family, the Ackley family... It is no exception when it comes to misplacing or losing things. How many of you have lost something, or somebody in your family has lost something in your home in the last week? Raise your hand. We all tend to do this. And when I lose something, there are two things. It drives my family crazy, by the way. It's, there's two things that I immediately do. This one doesn't, the second one does. I pray. And then I sit down. Now, they're all getting upset because I'm not scouring the house. I've learned that scouring the house often yields no result. So I sit down and I pray some more. And I begin to rethink. I begin to relive where I was. Can I remember where I put what I lost? That's what I do. And sure enough, I did this just recently. I couldn't find my wallet. And that's a pretty serious thing. I've got my credit cards. i got the church's credit card, my ID in it. I couldn't find it. I looked everywhere. I prayed. I sat down. I relived everything. I looked everywhere. And finally, I'm going, Lord, I don't know where else to look. I think I've looked every place there is. I sat down again. I said, okay, Lord, I know you know where it is. I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm just going to think and pray and let you stream that into my thought if that's what you're going to do. And all of a sudden, I remembered there's a storage compartment in my truck that I could not remember if I had looked there. Sure enough, I went straight down to the garage, opened up that storage compartment, and to ever-loving praise and exaltation of God, there is my wallet. So we all tend to lose things. But when we consider it, when we think through it, when we try to remember it, well, then you're kind of approaching the focus and the tense and the meaning of the word consider in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up. Now, by the way, very few people that I'm ever aware of actually do this. I ask people this. They they pick up this verse from stir up one another to love and good works really almost nobody does the first part of it and let us consider how it's a very very beautiful word you ever really stop and think about what you can do to help someone in their walk with christ to really consider that when you read this verse what comes to mind well what the writer of hebrews saying should come to mind how can i help that person love better? How can I help that person live better and display good works more? You see, our minds are so active, so imaginative, with all kinds of associations to words. So I can confidently tell you what was in the author of Hebrews' mind when he used the the phrase stir up. By the way, it's one Greek word, two English words, stir and up. One Greek word, look up on the screen, you're going to see what it means just by looking at it. I'll give you some synonyms in case you're having a hard time with it. Spasms, convulsions, seizures, outbursts, outbreak, all of those are synonyms of this Greek word that's been translated stir up. And the idea here is to strongly spur, to provoke to stir up someone to action. I'm going to sum all that up in one word. It just simply means to motivate people. So let us consider, let us think on it, let us sit down and really, really contemplate. How can I help somebody else be motivated to love and to live a life of good deeds? Listen, do you want a life of deep purpose and fulfillment? You know, I've asked a lot of people that question. I've never received a no, ever. However, what I have received, one after another, yes, I want a life of purpose, but how do I find it? The Bible tells us how to find it over and over and over. If you begin to live, and if I begin to live a life where we are deeply considering, we're reflecting on, we're contemplating, we're thinking through, how can I help somebody, how can I motivate them to love God more, to love people more, to live a life of good works more? Listen, that's going to be a life. On purpose, that is going to satisfy your soul. I'm going to tell you forget pursuing fame, forget wealth and security. They cannot satisfy what we were made for, they just simply cannot. It is more satisfying, by the way, for one person to tell me that I helped them grow spiritually than a hundred people telling me that was a nice sermon that I just preached. That's really not that satisfying. But when you sit down and tell me, you know what, Pastor Tim, that message, here's how it impacted my life. My life comes alive on purpose. As yours will. You see, when Jesus saved you, brother and sister... He gave you a new nature. Now, this is much more astounding than what we might think. I mean, the English on this is, I could say these words and they could be so trite. But he gave you a new nature. He gave you a new motor. He gave you a new want list. He gave you a new power control center. He gave you a new heart. And his spirit came inside like gasoline to empower it. It doesn't work without the spirit. So he gave you a new nature, he gave you a new heart, and he gave you the Spirit of God that dwells in you. And he began to do something that is astounding, that took the very sacrifice of Christ to do. He took the compass needle in your heart and in my heart, and he began to shift it off of pointing to ourselves, and began pointing it to other people, so that we could live a life of love and good works. Is there somebody in your life that we deeply think about this for a second? We just f- focus on this for just a moment. Is there somebody in your life that you have heard is a Christian who claims to be a Christian but is not acting that way? Whose faith is struggling and you can see they're beginning to lose hope. And they're beginning to dim in their confidence of God and they're beginning to flirt with the idea of walking away. They need you. You're the answer. You're the hands that God is going to use to come over theirs and hold it to the bar. If you've got somebody in your life like that, then consider, think deeply, meditate, pray. God, show me how can I motivate that person, stir that person up to love and good deeds. But it goes on. This is vital. This is the one I see people that claim to be Christians let go of so often. Simply two words, meet together, point number two. I've observed very often that when people drift away from Christ, are you hearing this? Because this might happen to some of you. When they drift away from Christ, they invariably wander away from the church. It's amazing, the correlation. I've seen it time after time. And one of the major parts of being a pastor, listen, if you feel like you're called to be a pastor or an elder, I'm going to tell you how you can know, at least in part, and I'm going to say it's in big part. Is there something in you that is restless until it pursues people? If you're waiting for people to come to you, you're not called to the pastorate. There is a gift calling in a pastor that is inexorably moving you towards the people who are struggling. Leaving the 99, going to get the 1. Leaving the 99, going to get the 1. Over and over and over. That's what pastors do. That's what elders do. And you bring them back into community. You bring them back into their faith. You put your hands over their hands and you hold it to the bar of hope. And Hebrews is telling us, continues to tell us, how to help help people persevere in our faith to the very end. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. You see that word habit? That's pretty strong. That's not a fluky thing. That's not a one-time event. This has become a habit for some people that when... They consider church, it doesn't rank high up on their priority scale. And so it's constantly, often, being replaced. Now, when I was younger, I was in church every Sunday morning. My parents took me every Sunday evening and every Wednesday. If the doors of the church were open, that's where Tim Ackley was when I was a little boy. But I don't think that the author of Hebrews has this meaning in mind when he says, meet together. I'm going to tell you why. You ready? You can go to church every opportunity that is available to you... ...and you can miss the point of the exhortation in this verse. Hebrews is telling us not to neglect meeting together. Why? So that we can grow in our love for each other and increase our help for each other... To endure in our faith. That's why we meet together. That's why we don't neglect together. It's not some legalistic thing that you can't skip church and God's not happy with you. Listen, that's bizarre. Don't believe that stuff. He wants you at church, He wants you to worship, He wants you in a life group, He wants you serving God in a ministry. Why? Because that's how your hand holds fast to the bar of your hope. He wants you in community. So I think it would be good to ask ourselves some just honest questions. Just brace yourself like Job. God commanded him, brace yourself, be a man, listen to these questions, let them trickle into your heart, see how you answered them. So here we go, I'm going to ask you some questions. You're the only one going to answer them, so you can be utterly honest with yourself. Am I involved in relationships in my church? Now, I don't know, I'm telling you right now, some of you I see come, I don't see you again for another week, and you leave as soon as the doors are open in the back sanctuary, as soon as the message is done. And that's not judgmentalism. I'm telling you, you're missing the power of the gospel. You're missing the power of redemptive community. Your hands will be in danger of coming off the bar of faith. That's why we preach this. This is why Hebrews was written. Am I involved in a life group in my church? Am I growing closer to those friends? Uh, here's a hard one. Is there anyone intentionally, actively helping me spiritually grow? How are you answering these? Think through your questions on that. and Don't, don't do what your flesh wants to do, and that is, well... Yeah, somebody told me they were praying for me, so there's people helping me grow. That's, you know that's not it. That's why I said intentionally, actively, helping you to grow spiritually. Let me ask this one. Oh, man, this is tough for us. You ready? Is there anyone other than my spouse that I've opened up the curtains of my private life with? I know a fact about you that's just as true for you as it is for me. You're struggling with sin. Come on. Don't try to pretend you're not. There's no redemptive quality in that denial. Even the great psalmist King David knew the scope of his sin. In fact, I'm going to tell you, the closer you grow to God, the more heinous your own sin becomes. It's such a travesty that sometimes it leads your soul into despair, back again to the cross. Who am I, God, that you would die for me? So you're struggling with sin. I struggle with sin. I'm not up here and you're down here, like I've arrived someplace of saintliness and you're hoping to get there. Listen, we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. We struggle with sin. We live in a world of temptation. Is there anybody that you've opened up the curtains of your life and says, Here is my struggle? Listen, go beyond your spouse. Because sometimes you're going to share something that would be too much for your spouse in that moment. You might be able to get there one day by God's grace. Let Him open up that opportunity. Be faithful if He does. But you've got to find another man, men, and you've got to find another woman, ladies, to be able to open up your curtains to. Because you can't make it through this life alone, not in your faith. Is there someone whom I've shared my deeper struggles with, my victories with, that I've given permission to call me out when they they see that I'm spiritually struggling? Am I functioning that way with anybody else? Am I going into somebody else's life, even feeling like an intruder at points? Because I'm not going to let them struggle alone. I'm going to knock on the door until they open up. Do you know how few Christians in any church, much less this church, live like this? And yet it's constantly the call of the Bible. And this is a corrective. This is how we've got to learn to live with one another. You've got to learn to trust one another and to be real with one another and invite them into your life with the acknowledgement of incredible humility. My hands will slip from the bar of my hope if your hands don't come over them. See, the message of the entire book of Hebrews is that we need one another and we must come together for a purpose. You know, an email that I received a few weeks ago was so encouraging to me. I'm going to share it with their permission, and I'm going to quote it. Here it is. You're going to have to listen. It won't be up on the screen. I've been studying the book of Psalms for my daily devotions, this person writes. The theme that has been sticking out to me as I've been reading the Psalms has been about friendship and love. The friendship that David had with the Lord. I've been seeking after that same friendship for about three years now. And God finally answered that prayer for me through the psalms that David wrote. It's amazing that I've been praying to have a closer relationship with God, and I've found my answer reading his word. As I have become part of Cornerstone and a part of the worship team, the love that I've received from the team has been beyond amazing. I have experienced the love that Jesus is commanding in John 13, 34, 35, and my prayer is that I will return this. Same love to my fellow brothers and sisters at Cornerstone as my love for the Lord continues to grow each day. See, this person understands you and I need each other, and we must learn how to live together in a redemptive community. But there's one more point, and that final point is to encourage one another. Verse 25. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You may or may not know this about me, but I absolutely, it's like a disease in me. I absolutely love snow. I cannot ever get enough snow. I think it's because I grew up in central New York. We had so much snow outside of Syracuse. And growing up there, we had a long driveway, steep and long, probably 150 feet. And the driveway extends for another 100 feet out to the back door. And whenever snow came, here's what my dad would do. He had an old 1946 Alice Chalmers tractor. The kind that you got to take the crank out of the side of the chassis, put it into the front below the radiator, there was no radiator, put it into the front and you've got to crank it to get it started. That's how we grew up in central New York. He had a plow on the front, a blade. And my job, and by the way, so was not All six of us kids' jobs was to stand on that blade when my dad was plowing the driveway so that our weight could keep it from riding up over the ice. So we're in the middle of a blizzard one time. I remember this with eerie clarity. We're in the middle of a blizzard. We're all standing like ducks or birds on a wire on this blade holding on. There's no place to hold on. We're holding on to each other, and my dad didn't slow down at all. He's going flying down this driveway, plowing our driveway. He backs up, and he backs up right into the ditch. We all went flying. Nobody got hurt. You're landing in a foot and a half of snow. But the tractor stuck. What are we gonna do? We tried hooking up cars, couldn't even hardly get the cars down the driveway to do it. That didn't work. There was no way. We're pushing, we're pushing. Nothing could get that tractor unstuck until all of a sudden the town grader started driving by. This is a BMF of a machine. It's got a plow right in the middle of it. It's about 35 feet long. And the guy driving it, my dad ran out in the middle of the road. This is Route 13, flags him down. And the guy stops. He's a friend of ours, very small town. And he says, I can help you with that. He pulls this grater into our driveway, hooks up a chain and effortlessly pulled this tractor out of the ditch. Now, listen, in story form, I just told you exactly what the word encourage Means. Now look at that b- word again. Exhort, or rather, let me go back up a little bit, verse 25. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's what the word means. It means to call someone alongside. It means to flag down the guy driving the grader. To call somebody alongside and then put your shoulder, so that person can put their shoulder to the wheel of your life, and help you get unstuck. That's how the word was used. There's lots of synonyms for it. It could be comforting somebody. It could be counseling somebody. By the way, if you, I've told you one of, the, uh, one of the vital attributes of a pastor. I'm going to tell you one for a counselor. If you're called to be a counselor, if God has gifted you to be a counselor, there is something in you that cannot but want to put your shoulder to the wheel of that person's life and to do what you can to push them out. That's what a counselor has. It's a desire to help. But there's other synonyms. Maybe you want to urge or console somebody or encourage that person, even possibly rebuke that person. Whatever it takes to get them moving, that's what the word encouraging means. Hebrews 3, Pastor Matthew read it earlier. But exhort or encourage one another, same word, every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But how do you do that? How do you put your shoulder to the wheel? Now, this is actually the most practical part of the message, and I'm almost done. This is the part I really want you to get. First of all, I want you to get the motivation. I want you to get the theology behind it. Now, we cannot keep the hands of our faith on the bar without help. We must learn to live together. We've got to stir up one another. We've got to motivate one another. And we do that by meeting together, by living lives together, by being in community together. If you're a solo Christian that never gets involved in the people in your church, then you're on your own. I don't think you're going to last. You're in danger of not making it to the end. But then how do we encourage? You know, one thing about the Bible I really want to impress on you. If you haven't really listened to too much other than my little stories I've shared with you, if you haven't listened to too much, at least connect in with this one. Are you ready? I want you to be students of God's word. I want the word of God living in you. I want you in it Every day. But sometimes when you're in the Bible, you're going to come to a verse or a passage, and you're going to go, what on earth does that mean? I have no idea what this means. And you're going to begin, I hope, praying and going, God, it's your Spirit's job to guide me into all truth, to open up my eyes, and and to remind me of a beautiful truth. You ready? Here's the truth I want you to, to learn. Scripture always explains Scripture. If you don't understand a verse... Here, God already has the explanation over here. You just need to find it. You need to be led to it. Don't expect some mystical understanding to stream into your mind apart from the Word of God. He's already given you everything that is sufficient. You get in the Word of God, and he will show you what this means. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually learn that through practice. What does it mean to encourage one another? What does it look like to motivate, to stir one another up to love and good deeds? The rest of that chapter is going to show us. And I'm going to give you a few ways to do it. The first one is this. It's going to sound odd. Let me explain it. We must relive past endurances. We must relive past endurances. Now look at verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Look at that word again. But recall. Now this is a beautiful word. It doesn't mean to bring information back into your mind. That's how we would tend to use it. Uh, Listen, it's way more glorious than that. It means to relive an experience. It means to relive it. It means to sit down when you lose something and sit with your eyes closed and review back every little minutia that you can remember of what you've done and where you've been until the Lord pops into your mind where it is. It means to bring it back as if you're living it again. That's what the word recall means. It's to reconstruct what has already happened. Now let me ask you, can you remember a moment in your life where you were humiliated publicly? I can. Can you? Perhaps you recall that and you feel yourself, and I have, shudder automatically you kind of almost I, when I've done that my face is actually involuntarily turned away it's like I don't want to see it again because it came back with all of that stark feeling and emotion again that's the power of recalling as you relive experiences now listen where you endured difficult times And when you relive it and you see the fingerprints of God and you see how God endured you through it, it has the power to hold you fast knowing that the same God that brought you through it will continue to bring you through difficulties and your hope and your confidence and your faith for the future will increase. How do you hold fast to the confession of your faith? You relive those things that God has brought you through. Now, listen, let's just be really, really gut-wrenchingly raw for a moment. It might be a loss of a baby. It might be a burned-down house. It might have been a loss of a job. It might have been cancer that God has brought you through. I don't know. There's hundreds of scenarios. But when you relive it, and you relive it through the filter of God's fingerprints and how he has brought you through it, you will gain hope. And you will hold fast to the confession of your faith. But there's a second one. We must have a community mindset with each other, verse 32, and sometimes being partners with those treated. Do you know how they were treated? These early Christians were losing their jobs because of their faith in Christ. They were losing their homes because of their faith in Christ. Some of them are being martyred because of their faith in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says, and sometimes being partners, you can't let somebody suffer alone. You can't let somebody experience difficulty alone. You can't turn an eye of compassionlessness and avoid them. They're going to lose their faith. They're going to lose their hope. There simply are times when we cannot go it alone. We need to come together. We need to help each other. And the community mindset of a really a redemptive church is where no one has to live life alone. Now, you know that requires, right? You absolutely know this. I know you know this. Me just preaching this is going to mean nothing unless it gets to the individual person in the pews and says, I've got to live differently. I've got to live in community I just can't come to church and then leave and see everybody in a week again and not carve out relational time, not get involved in a life group, not serve God through that church. I've got to get involved because I can't go it alone, and neither can anybody else. It's my job to hold people's hands fast to their hope, and it's their job to do it for me as well. It's not just the pastors and the elders. It's every single one of us. But there's a third We must have compassion for each other, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How do you joyfully accept that? This is amazing to me. I just lost my house because of my faith in Christ and you know what? I am so on fire for Jesus. That's what they were doing. What do you think would happen to those who showed compassion by visiting the christians in church in prison you're now identifying i'm one of them and yet it was an an impediment to the church they did it anyways they said you know what if they're going to take my home if they're going to take my job if they're going to take my my life it's okay i'm not going to let anybody sit in prison alone it's my job to love to be one another But then finally, we must keep our eyes on the finish line. Look at what it says in verse 34: since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The biblical fact is this: it is not good for us to be alone. We need to be together in our faith. So let us consider deeply, how do we stir one another up to love and to good deeds? How do you do it? We do this by meeting together, beyond just seeing each other one day a week, but having real relationships, getting into a life group, a Bible study, serving in a ministry together with other people, being with each other, forming accountability groups. And we learn to encourage one another, putting our shoulders to the wheels of their lives. Because why? The day of Christ's return is drawing near. You know what that means? Let me turn that to the negative. It's going to get morally and more and more dark. It's going to be evil all around us. And it's going to rise up and it's not going to bother to disguise itself. That's what's going to happen the closer the return of Christ. And that's what we're seeing happening now. Hold fast to our faith, and we help each other persevere to the end. Let me read those lyrics from that song that most of us, I'm sure, absolutely loved. Rubicon Cross, a saying, Save me from myself, I can't make it on my own. Come join the fight, and together we'll be strong. Best of friends, true champions, we'll take on any challenge. A special breed. We're born to lead. This blood is our alliance. How amazing. Self-sacrifice is the price. Lay down your life and bleed with me. I will guarantee if you stand with me, you'll forever be my brother. Side by side, we live or die for honor and for pride. Tonight, come on and bleed with me. Amen. Let's pray.